Well, good morning, everybody. Um, please open up to Colossians chapter 1. Um, chapter 1, verses 15 to 29. Grace, as you know, we started Colossians last week. This is Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Um, instructing them on how to defend themselves in their faith. You know, one of the main problems of Christianity in the early days was so many false teachers were creeping into the church to try and usurp them, to try and teach them a different way, and ultimately to lead them away from Jesus. We don't know what the heresy in this book was. We know it as the Colossian heresy. Um, we get hit, hints throughout the book. There's things to do with the angelic realm, things to do with a workspace religion, keeping new moons and Sabbaths. But ultimately, what the heretics in this church were doing is they were leading people away from the security, the hope, and the peace that we find in Jesus. And that's not okay. You know, the gospel clearly presents Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Again, he says he is the only way to the Father, and to preach any other way by Jesus it's going to lead you or lead someone else down to a path of destruction. And so what Paul's remedy to this false teaching is to, is to show them the truth of who Jesus is and then to walk in that truth. Last week, you remember, as Simon was preaching, Paul was praising God and giving thanksgiving because of the faith of those in Colossae, that they had accepted the Lord, that they were holding on to the gospel, and that they were walking in a manner worthy of their calling. Paul wanted them to please God, to bear fruit, and to give, give good works. And he, 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 he breaks into this praise of God the Father, saying, God, thank you so much that you have brought these people out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And as he starts talking about the kingdom of the beloved Son, Jesus, Paul in our text this morning, he breaks into this wonderful praise, this wonderful, almost like a hymn, a song, about who Jesus is. You see, the remedy to a false Jesus is seeing who he really is. You know, the world will present to you many counterfeit Jesuses. The cults will do this. You know, Hare Krishnas will do this. Islam will do this. But the reality is there is only one Jesus, and we need to proclaim him to the world. You know, he is our source. He is our hope. And so we ask the question, well, who is Jesus the real Jesus and what has he done for us and that's the focus of our text this morning so let's read some of Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 it reads he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things are created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let's stop there and we'll pray. 
But Father, thank you, Lord, for the mystery, God, that has been revealed to us, that Jesus Christ, you came to die in the place of sinners. God, you came, Lord, to free us from the power of death and the power of grave. God, that you came to transport us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Jesus, you came to dwell in us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, you came that we may be holy and blameless before you, God. Jesus, what a wonderful God you are. And God, I pray as we, as, we, as we read about you this morning and read about who you are, Jesus, God, help us to understand. Open up our minds, God. Speak to our hearts, Lord Jesus, today. Show us of your greatness, God. Just a small glimpse of who you are, Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be teaching us today, that you would speak to me, God, that your word would be made alive, God, in our hearts. Transform us as we look at the, the perfect, the beloved Son. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We'll start with the first three verses, 15 to 17. Again, it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things are created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Great. So in our first section of our text this morning, three verses, Paul, speaking of Jesus, he tells us about who he is and his role in, in creation. See, if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is the one we look to, then Paul's going to start with the really, the really big picture, and that is the universe and everything in it. He says in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So let's break that down into two parts, the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. So what does it mean, I guess, that Jesus is the image of God? So this word image is a Greek word, icon, and it has two ideas. Uh, the first is likeness. So it's the idea of, you know, looking at a portrait of someone. You know, if I was to paint a picture of someone in this room, I'm not very good at art, but it might be some, hopefully, a likeness of the person I'm painting. You know, you look at, say, Van Gogh's self-portrait, and you know that is Van Gogh. That is the likeness of him. Uh, if you look in the mirror, your reflection is a likeness of you. In the, in the first century AD, uh, the denarius, which was your coin, you know, your day's wage, as a little coin, they had the image of the emperor on them. They had his likeness, his icon. And so this word image of the invisible God means the likeness of the invisible God. But the second thing is the idea of, of manifestation, the idea of something being revealed to you. You know, I can, I can describe something to you and I can, I can paint a picture in your mind. Say, say my daughter Nora, for example. You know, I can tell you, you know, she, she's tree, she's, she's small, she's a little stocky, she's blonde hair, she's these perfect eyebrows, you know, she's a great smile, and she's mad. And what happened is, as I'm describing her, you're going to get in your head this kind of theoretical, you know, concept of who she is. You're going to imagine it. But if I whip out my phone and I show you a picture of her, or I take her out of crash and bring her up here, 
she's going to be revealed to you all. You're going to clearly see who she is. You know, the theoretical becomes real. She's been manifested to you. You see the real deal. And so Paul, when he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he is saying he is the likeness of the invisible God and that he is the manifestation of God. And this is important because God is invisible. It's a, it's a funny term. We never really talk about God as being the invisible God, but he is. Scripture teaches that God is a spirit, and we, we can't see spirits. You, know, you cannot physically see a spirit, and so we cannot see God. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so we cannot see God in the same way that we look at each other. I can see you, you can see me, and we have this way, we are visible to each other. So that's one idea of the invisible God. But the other idea is that it's the idea of being unknown. You know, if you can't see something, you can't truly know it. And by ourselves, we cannot know God. In fact, anything we know of God is because he has chosen to reveal it to us in his word. The only thing we know of God is what he chooses to show us. And Paul said what God has revealed to us is his son, Jesus. In Jesus, the unknowable God becomes knowable. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And what he and Paul are saying there is that Jesus is fully God in the way that God the Father is fully God and God the Holy Spirit is fully God. You know, have you ever wondered or have you ever been asked the question, you know, who is God? You know, so many people say, well, who is God? Which God is the real God? What is God? What is he like? Have you ever asked the question, what is God truly like? That's an important question because, see, many people have many different answers to that because people are great at inventing gods. We are wonderful at making a god in our own image after our own likeness. I know when I was younger, before I was a Christian, I had an idea of God, and funny enough that God approved of the things I approved of, he disapproved of the things I disapproved of, and ultimately that God was answerable to me. This is what mankind does. We make gods in our images who answer to us. But the scripture teaches that everything that God is is found in the person of Jesus. And we do not need to look anywhere else but in the face of Jesus. You know, Jesus was asked by one of his disciples in the Gospel of John, Philip. Philip goes to him, Lord, show us the Father. You know, show us God and it will be enough. What does Jesus say to him? He says, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So again, if you want to know God, then you need to know Jesus. There is no other way. He is the image of the invisible God, Paul says. And he is the firstborn of all creation. That's a, a funny word, firstborn. Now, it's a funny word because many funny groups of people have taken this word and this phrase to twist who Jesus is. And we have a name for those people. We call them cultists and we call them heretics. So what these groups of people do with this word firstborn 
is they take it and they say that this means that Jesus is a created being. That Jesus, before creating everything else, was a created being. And they twist who he is. And this is a false teaching called Arianism. It was dealt with long ago by the early church when Arius was preaching this. And the church said, no, this is a heresy. God, Jesus, is not a created being. And yet, even though Arius is long gone, so many groups in the world today still hold to this belief. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they believe that Jesus is a created being. And church, that is a false Jesus that is being taught. He is not a created being. He is the creator, Paul says. And in fact, the word firstborn proves it. Now, the word firstborn, it's prototokos. It's a Greek word. It has two meanings. The first is coming first in time, as in, like, I was born before you. You know, Nora is my firstborn child. Roshi is my secondborn child. And so it can mean that word, being you know, prioritized in time, coming before something else. But the other meaning of the word firstborn talks about supremacy and rank, as in, I am above you. You know, you can be the youngest child in a family, but you can be the person that everyone looks up to. You can be the person who gets the will, who gets everything when the parents go. And this, this idea of being preeminent in a rank is something that's used time and time again in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, for example, God calls Jacob his firstborn son. And if you know the book of Genesis, Esau came first, and then Jacob. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 89, the psalmist says of David that he is the firstborn. But as you know, David was actually the youngest son of Jesse. And so you don't have to be physically the firstborn in the family to be the firstborn. Does that make sense? So, you know, naturally, if I died and Dee died, Nora would get all of our possessions being our firstborn child. But if I said, no, Roisin, my youngest daughter, gets it all, in a sense, she is the firstborn. And I want to make that very clear because, again, many cults will twist this and say that this means that Jesus is a created being, the first being in all of creation, which, again, is wrong. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the eternal one. He is before creation exam began, and he is above creation. He stands above this world because he created it. Paul says, by, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's verse 16. Think about what he's saying there. All things were created by Jesus. Everything you see, everything you will never see, everything that will ever exist, things you will never know about, have been created by Jesus and for Jesus. And that's amazing because we live in an amazing universe. Um, it's estimated, I was looking this up in the week, that there are more stars in our universe in the sky than there are grains of sand on the earth. There are trillions upon trillions of planets and stars that we will never see with the human eye, yet they are there just floating in space. In one square mile of land, there is more insects in that square mile than there are people on the earth, and we will never see them all. There are creatures, as estimated, living you know, in the deepest parts of the ocean that humanity will never see. There are shades of colors that our eyes cannot see. 
even our bodies are amazing creations. Your nose can smell, I believe it's up to a trillion different smells. A lot of them really bad, some really nice. But your nose has been created to smell every single one. Everything in this universe, the visible things in heaven and on earth, have been created by Jesus, Paul says. And everything invisible, the spiritual realm, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, are all created by Jesus. And again, this goes against very much what the cults teach. You know, Mormons believe that Jesus and Satan are brothers, that they're like physically brothers. Uh, the Watchtower Society teaches that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Many cults will try and drag Jesus down from whom he really is. Yet here Paul says that everything in the spiritual realm, in the physical realm, is created by our God, Jesus. Paul goes on to say that all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, verse 17. Once again, everything you see, the things you will never see, are created by Jesus, being held together by Jesus, and are for the glory of of Jesus, and that includes you and me. And if you are God's creation, if Jesus Christ, in his plan, you know, ordained that you would come into being, that means you're here for a purpose. It means that he created you, he sustains you, and he has put you here for the purpose of bringing him glory. You know, people often ask, you know, what's the meaning of life? What am I meant to do here? I'm here to bring God glory. That's a really important idea in Paul's theology, and it's something we're going to come back to later. But for now, Paul moves on from declaring that he, Jesus, is the Lord of creation to being the Lord of the church. Read it me, please, verses 18, 19, and 20. Paul says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So again, in this section, Paul moves on from talking about Jesus being the creator to being Jesus being the head of the church. So Paul says that he is the head of the body. Now, the body is a term that Paul often uses to describe specific individual churches, but also the church as a whole. Church, we are the body of Christ. Each and every one of you who is a Christian, you are part of the body. There is no exception. And the head of this body is Jesus, Paul says. He is the head. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that each and every one of you is part of it. And so if we are the body, and we know that, you know, being a body, we're different parts of the body, we have different functions, different features, we're there to keep the body going. But what does it mean that Jesus is the head? So there's two things he's saying here. The first is this, is that Jesus has authority over his church. Jesus has authority over his church. You know, obviously, because I, I work in a company down the road, and they know I'm a Christian. They know I'm not Catholic anymore. They know I you know, go to a church in an old pub. And they have lots of questions, naturally. And one of the questions they ask me all the time is, you know, who's the head of your church? 
You know, who's, who started Calvary Waterford and who started the church that they come from? Who's the church head of your church? And they're thinking in the sense of, you know, like a, a denomination. And I always, when they ask me that question, I always smile at them. And I say, Jesus is the head of our church. And they look at me really confused. And I, I love it. I'm having a joke with them. I'm having a bit of a laugh. But you see, because they've grown up in Ireland, most of them, my colleagues, are Irish. They, as myself, we have been brought up with the idea that the head of a church needs to be a person. It needs to be a man. But again, that's not something you're going to find in Scripture. The Scripture does not teach that anybody is the head of the church bar Jesus. Again, it's not something you're going to find in the Bible. And if a religion says to you that a man is the head of the church, that religion is lying. Now, we know there's leaders in the church, and after I confuse them, I do let them know, well, there is such a thing as church leadership, and God raised up the apostles, he raised up the prophets, he raises up pastors to have authority and to guide and lead the church. But these leaders are not the heads of the church. You know, your pastors are not the heads of this church. Jesus is the head of this church. And again, any religion that teaches otherwise is teaching something that is not true. And many religions teach this. Again, because we're in Ireland, we know the Catholic Church teaches this, that there are two heads. There is the head of the invisible church, which is Jesus, and the head of the visible church, which is the Pope, the Vicar of Christ. But again, this is not something you will find in the Bible. I challenge you to read it from back to front and see where it says anyone by Jesus is the head of his church. There is one head, and it is our Lord. So again, Jesus has authority over his church, but when Paul says he is the head of the church, it also carries a second meaning, because what does a head do? Well, we know our brains in our head, so it helps us to guide and you know, direct our body, but it's through our head that we take in food. You know, it's through our head in the sense that we have a source of life. We take in sustenance, and it strengthens our body. And so in the Greek, one of the ways it's being carried over is that Jesus is the one who is the sustaining life of our church. Jesus is the source of all life in our church. Again, Jesus, he created the church, he sustains it, and he gives it life. You're asking, what, what makes a church? What keeps a church going? What brings life to a church? And the truth is, it isn't our friendship or our love for each other or the good things that we do that make us the church. Now, those things are important. They prove we are the church. It's what the church should do, but it is not those things that make us the church. Jesus makes us the church. He sustains us. He is the binding force that keeps us together. He is the one who will keep us going. And to depart from Jesus as a church is to depart from the life. Jesus says this in the Gospel of John. He says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says he is the source of our life as a church. And the question is, are you and are we as a church abiding in Christ? 
You know, in your life, where are you seeking the power to live a godly life? Is it in yourself or is it in Jesus? Because we have no life and no power without him. And so he is the head of the church. He is the one who gives us life. And Paul goes on to say that he is the beginning, the first born from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so Paul, speaking of Jesus as the head of the church, he brings us back to that word firstborn. And remember that firstborn speaks of creation, that Jesus is before creation, that he is above creation. And so Paul, once again, he reminds us of that idea that he is preeminent, that he is above all. But here he's not pointing back to the first creation. He calls him the firstborn of the dead. He is pointing forward to the next creation. And so we talked about Jesus being the firstborn of creation. What does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead? Jesus being the firstborn of the dead means he is obviously the first person to have ever been resurrected. We know we've seen the Bible, God raising people from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. But Lazarus died again. You know, and every person that Paul raised from the dead, that person died. Jesus as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the first to be resurrected from the grave, and so he is the king of this new creation that is coming. And it's an amazing truth of the gospel that because Jesus is the first to be raised from the dead, because our God is alive, he has paved the way for each and every one of us to live in that future creation. Because he lives, we know we will live. Paul, in fact, goes on so much to say in 1 Corinthians that if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then what's the point? What's the point of doing any of this? But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by a man came death, and by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Jesus' resurrection from dead has opened the way for all of us who trust in him to follow him in a resurrection like his. Again, our ultimate hope as Christians is not that we're just going to go to heaven when we die. Our hope is a physical resurrection of our bodies being raised from the dead, living with Jesus forever. To be raised to a new life just like Jesus. And again, it's possible because he is the firstborn of the dead, the firstborn of the resurrection. And Paul continues on in verses 19 and 20 saying, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And just as a recap, Paul has described Jesus in a lot of amazing, beautiful ways this morning, hasn't he? He tells us that Jesus is the image of God. He is the firstborn of, over all of creation. That he is the creator. That he is eternally preexistent. That he is the head of the church. That he is the victor over the grave. 
and that he is first in all things. And so Paul can say, truly, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And what's amazing is when you see that wonderful depiction of how great and how glorious our Savior Jesus is, what does Paul say that he has come to do? Paul says that he has come to bring reconciliation between man and God. He has come to bring us peace. He has come to shed his blood on the cross. So the gospel teaches that we have a problem that we cannot overcome. The gospel says that we are sinners separated from God. We are strangers to God, the gospel says. We are alienated from God. We are dead in our sins, the gospel teaches us. It says, in fact, that we are at war with God, and we as people need peace. Again, the problem is we cannot make peace by ourselves. You know, we try to be good, and for a while, I remember as, as a teenager going, going to church every Sunday, I would feel this great sense of, yes, I'm going to go out and do it now. I'm going to be good. And I was an absolute jerk and a, a nuisance to my mother the second I got home. You know, I had fallen flat on my face right, you know, right off the starting line. The problem is we cannot be good and we cannot save ourselves. We fail. We fail so often. Even the good things we do, God's word says in regards to righteousness, they are like filthy rags before him. We can't save ourselves. And so Jesus came to save us. And he came to this earth. He left behind his glory. He stepped down into his creation to shed his blood for you and for me. And the blood of the cross that Paul speaks of, it speaks of the real physical death of Jesus in our place on our behalf before God. It is his literal death on the cross. His judgment before God on our behalf that saves us. Jesus has come to save, and you are saved by calling upon the name of the Lord. Romans 10 says, if you believe in your heart that he is Lord, and you confess your mouth, if you believe he has been raised from the dead, you will be saved. It is a guarantee. It is that simple. Jesus has done the work for you, and all you need to do is claim the victory that he has won. See, these Gnostic teachers are coming into the church saying, you know, you have to follow the law. You have to seek out our hidden knowledge. You have to do X, Y, and Z to be saved. Paul says it is the shedding of the blood of the Son of God that saves us and nothing else. It is simply trust in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You will be saved. And that is part of God's purpose in creating us, that God desires to save you from your sins. And if you have accepted him, if you have trusted in him for that first part, then he has saved you. But again, he saved you for another purpose, like we said earlier. That is to bring him glory. See, salvation isn't the magical ticket that gets you off the hook from doing bad things all your life. Salvation is there to set you free from sin so that you can serve the living God. Again, our purpose is to serve and to glorify our God. This is what Paul is speaking about earlier, that we might bring him glory. 
And so as we move into verses 21 to 23, Paul speaks of this purpose of bringing God glory. Paul says, verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present to you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So again, Paul speaks to us of Jesus' purpose of saving you and me. Again, to bring him glory. But as he speaks of this purpose, he reminds us of the condition that we were in before coming to God. He says that we were alienated from God. So that word alienated literally means to be transferred to a different owner. Like being sold as a slave to someone else. And this points back to what Paul said in verse 14, that we were part of the domain of darkness. John, the Apostle John in his epistle, 1 John, says that this world lies under the power of Satan. It lies under the power of the evil one. And so everyone in this world is part of his kingdom. This world is the enemy's kingdom, and the keys were handed over to him when Adam sinned. You know, we are from Adam. We come from Adam, and as we come from Adam, we are born alienated from God, slaves to the kingdom of darkness. And as we are part of that kingdom, we act like that kingdom. We act like we are citizens of that kingdom. Paul says we are hostile in our minds. He says we, we think of evil. He says we do evil deeds, and we do. And that was our state before coming to God. And that is a state of those who need to be saved. And Paul says again in verse 14, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has taken us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son, through whom we have redemption to forgiveness of sins. So again, Jesus has brought us into that kingdom from the death, his death on the cross. And again, he has done so so that he could present us holy and blameless and above reproach. God's desire is that you would become like his son. God wants you to be like his son. And that is a beautiful truth of the gospel. It's that God loves you so much that he saved you while you were in your sin. But you've probably heard it been said, he loves you too much to leave you in your sin. God will not leave you in the sin that you found, he found you in. He loves you too much for that. And God has redeemed us so that he may change us. We have been brought into the kingdom of God and we need to live as citizens of that kingdom. We need to obey the laws of that kingdom because we are citizens of heaven. And that is both a command and a promise. As Christians, those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, we are commanded to live increasingly holy lives before God. That's increasingly holy. That doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means there is an expectation as you walk with Jesus, you will become more and more like Jesus. You will resemble your Lord if you continue in the faith, Paul says. In fact, he says that in verse 23. He says in verse 23 that we must continue in the faith, standing steadfast and not departing from the hope of the gospel. Again, these false teachers, they were coming in, they were preaching a false gospel 
of works. And Paul teaches them, encourages them to remember the truth. Remember what has saved you, that Jesus has won the victory over sin for you. And you walk in that victory by putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Again, we don't live a holy life to be saved. We live lives of holiness because we are saved. We are saved and we live lives that show that. So this is a command. But it is also a promise. Again, Paul says that we're not going to present ourselves to God at the end of the day and say, God, look at me. Look how holy I've become. Look how great I've become, God. Look how free from sin I am. Paul says that it is Jesus who will present us as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, the truth is that Jesus is at work in you. It's not just you by yourself trying to do it. He is at work in you. He will make you above reproach. And what that means is no matter, again, how bad you think you are, no matter how much you think you're stuck in your sin, you'll never get out of it. He is at work in you, and he has promised to present you holy, blameless, above reproach before God. Paul would remind us to remember that he who began that good work in us will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. It is a promise that Paul wants us to know of. That Jesus is at work in the midst of us, in the midst of his people. And as, as we move on now from this picture of who Jesus is in the, the last part of our chapter, Paul, he recounts to us what he has done to make that message known for the Colossians. Verses 24 to 26 reads, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, for which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed in his saints. So remember, Paul wrote this letter from a Roman prison. Now, he was in jail, and his life was on the line because of his devotion to Jesus and his devotion to preaching the gospel. And throughout his ministry, Paul had suffered. You know, he had been beaten for the gospel, flogged, stoned for the gospel. He was thrown in jail for the gospel. He was brought before Caesar for the gospel. And now he is waiting in Rome to see if he's going to pay the price, the ultimate price, his very life for the sake of Jesus. And yet in the midst of this suffering, and Paul knew what it was to suffer, he rejoices. He has joy. Again, we just finished the book of Philippians where Paul recounts to us time and time again his joy that he has in the Lord. And Paul had joy now. He says that he can rejoice because he knows his labor was not in vain. You know, Paul saw the fruits that his suffering was producing. That there is Christians like those in Colossae walking with the Lord, giving him glory. And this gave Paul a great joy. He says it is for their sake, for the sake of the church, that he suffers. And he's filling up in his body Christ's afflictions for the church. He's saying, you know, give it all, put it all on me. I'm going to take the suffering, Lord, for the sake of your church. He saw himself as the minister and servant of the church. And as he suffered, he looked and he saw a church that was growing. You know, a church that was 
becoming more holy, that was growing in the Lord towards perfection. Paul didn't look to himself, he looked to others. He looked to his Savior and his selfless, perfect life, and he followed him. He was willing to do it for other people because of what he knew the Lord had done in him. His joy was unquenchable. He knew his calling. He knew he was a minister for the church. He knew he was called by God. Again, no one else would have called Paul. No one else would have called the persecutor of the church to be the one to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. It was Jesus that called Paul. Paul knew that he was chosen by Jesus to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to suffer for his sake. And he says his ministry was to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed in his saints. So Paul wanted to tell the world of a great mystery. He wanted to tell them of this revelation from God that was made freely known to each man and to each woman. And so we ask, well, what was this mystery that Paul had? What was this, this, this secret knowledge that was revealed to him? Read me the last three verses. It says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So what is this mystery that God has revealed to Paul and to his saints? It's this in verse 27. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When we send a sign there, God is present. That is the hope of glory, that our God is present. The mystery hidden for ages is that the Lord of creation, the head of the church, the one who shed his blood on the cross, desires to be with you. Jesus desires that you would abide in him as he would abide in you. And through the gospel, through his death and resurrection, that is made possible. Again, the mystery is God has made a way for sinners to come into his presence. Jew and Gentile alike, this grace extends to everybody. We have the hope of glory, Paul says, and this is a hope that anyone who comes to Christ can have. Jesus in the book of Revelation says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus' desire is for us to be with him forever. And if it's a Christ, you are a Christian, that is a truth that you get to hold on to today. Again, that you are, your, your, your future isn't in a grave. Your future is with the Lord Jesus starting the day forever. And church, that is the news that we must preach to this world. That our God is alive and he wants us alive with him. And so that is our call. As we go into a time of worship this morning, we must answer that question. Will I obey that call? Will I go? Will I go and preach the good news? Will I suffer for the name of Jesus? Will I choose to abide in Jesus in a deeper way? And will I choose to live a life of holiness 
by the power of the Spirit. I'd encourage you this morning as we go into that time of worship to go before God with those questions. Are you being obedient to that call? Are you willing to go deeper in that relationship with Jesus? So let's, let's, let's pray for that now. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would set that question on each and every one of our hearts this morning, God. Will we obey your call to holiness, God, to life of blamelessness, to life of knowing you deeper, Jesus? That is eternal life, knowing you, Jesus, and God the Father. Holy Spirit, as we worship this morning, would you just reveal the truth of the answer to us, God? God, would you help us by your grace to walk in obedience before you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received? God, if anyone in this room does not know you, Jesus, I pray that they would simply call on your name, God, and be saved, as your word says, that, Jesus, you have done the work on the cross for them. All we need to do is respond in faith, God, to what you have called us to do. Jesus, you are great, you are wonderful, you are powerful. And God, we choose to worship you now, our creator, our Lord, who shed his blood for us. We praise you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.